Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Phil Smith sitting in for Jonathan McRae. Thank you for downloading, subscribing and rating. Coming up on this week's show, the 3D holograms being developed to highlight obstacles on the road. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter at newstalkscience, or you can text us for 30 cents at 53106. And as ever, we will get to all of your comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. First up, as always, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Leanne Shanley, which is a PhD researcher from the School of Biochemistry and Immunology in Trinity College, and Fergus McAuliffe from ICRAG. Our first story has to do with our gut feelings, or really how our guts make us feel. Leanne? Well, researchers have believed, or do believe, that they have uncovered a link between your gut microbiome and the development of social anxiety disorder, or SAD for short. Um, So what these researchers have found is they recruited some volunteers, six people with diagnosed SAD and six without, uh, and then they did something quite gross. So they took uh, faecal samples from these volunteers and they transplanted it into the colons of mice, and then they tested these mice for behavioural differences post-transfer. And what they found was that the mice that received a faecal transplant from the people suffering from SAD displayed different behaviours in relation to social fear. So they found that these mice were um, conditioned by meeting a new mouse and every time they would approach the new mouse, they'd receive a small electric shock. The mice that had received the healthy microbiome didn't seem to lose their curiosity or their willingness to approach the new mouse. But the mice that had the microbiome of the SAD um, sufferers were more hesitant to approach. So they have uh, now linked this to SAD. So, ah, science. Fecal transplants and shocking mice when they meet someone to make them anxious. Exactly. So they they can be up to all sorts, but fecal transplant, gross as they sound, they do work and they are clinically used, um, particularly in the case of C. difficile. They're they're massively efficacious in in treating that disease. Yeah, this isn't something new. The fecal transport is something we've heard, and particularly from researchers in UCC as well and APC that's down there and also doing good microbiome research. Exactly. Uh, Where is this kind of going? Is this something that, like, can we apply to us that we can now look at and and how we behave or people who have SA? Is it something that can be really related to humans? Yeah, it's more so that they're kind of expanding our understanding of, of the links to these um, behavioural disorders or there's it's known that the microbiome is linked to the likes of depression, anxiety, even PTSD. So the microbiome is a huge uh, area of research. It's, it's hugely expanding, but there's a lot to be uncovered so far. But they do believe that this would translate to humans as, as a lot of research has previously done in this area. And have they suggested anything that we can do in terms of like what we can eat or what we can ingest? Yes, I think one of the takeaway messages, as it usually is in the case of our uh, gut microbiome research, is uh, eat your fibre, eat your fermented foods and just really look after your diet because our guts really control uh, us to a much greater extent than we previously believed. So our takeaway message is less takeaways, uh, from it, uh, and more greens is the answer, which segues beautifully into our second story, Fergus. Greener trees can also save us too. Yes. So this, um, you know that question of how do you know when a volcano is going to explode? I don't know. Well, the short answer is we don't know. And the long answer is we have a little bit of light on it now. So um, when a volcano is like on the way to exploding, is it like on the, the, you know, the long slow like a approach route, it does release um, increased amounts of carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is an essential part of photosynthesis. So 
However, it's it's if you're if you're trying to um, to measure increased amounts of carbon dioxide near a volcano, uh, where do you put your instruments? Where do you put your machines, etc.? And how can you distinguish between volcanic carbon dioxide and atmospheric carbon dioxide? So a, w- a way to do that potentially is by using trees. So what, um, and this is actually really, really nice research that was done out of McGill University in Canada. And they looked at a series of satellite images of Yellowstone National Park um, across the span of about 40 years. And what they were able to tell is that um, because they were looking into the past, they did know if, if you know, or they, they had a sense um, of when, when, vol- when volcanic activity was taking place. But crucially, through these satellite images, they were able to see, okay, trees in this area of known volcanism became greener because there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Trees in this location where there wasn't volcanic activity remained the same colour. So that was a really good indication of, okay, there is something building here. On the flip side then, um, another gas that comes out as part um, of volcanism is sulfur dioxide, and that is poisonous to plants. So there's this weird Jekyll and Hyde relationship between plants and volcanoes that's going on all the time. And what the, what's the point of all this? Like, what's the takeaway? Well, like, despite, you know, to me, like, being a volcanologist is like one of the coolest careers out there. It's cool because you get to study volcanoes, but it's crazy because you get to study volcanoes and how, how close you want them to get. But in, in, in the case of some of our more dangerous volcanoes on Earth, like things like Mount Etna, Montal in the Philippines, these are in really remote areas that are covered in vegetation. So this potentially could be used as a proxy of building volcanic pressure and something may happen in the future. So this is something as well, potentially with like the European Space Agency satellites that look down, we could use AI and really kind of have used that lot, number crunching lots of data. So another fantastic potential application that might save lives. Absolutely. I mean, this is pattern recognition. It's the changing of colour and that's exactly what, a, what AI and machine learning does. Yeah, well, I mean, volcanoes are angry. They're angry magma spewing things. So to to calm them down would be nice. Uh, And also calming down other things. Sometimes a good cry is all you need. Maybe a volcano erupting is just having a good cry. But there's other research that we've, Leanne, you've seen that there's more than meets the eye with this one. There is, yes. So next time you find yourself in the midst of a brawl, perhaps the best uh, solution is to just cry. Just break down. That often happens. That's my go-to thing, actually, is just a cry. Well, science uh, backs you up. It says you're doing the right thing. So researchers in the Weizmann Institution, Israel, have discovered that female tears calm aggression in males. Um, So this is a really funny study. So they've done three experiments, but I'm going to focus on the first one because this is kind of uh, the interesting part. So what they did was they recruited uh, female donors who self-identified as uh, crying easily. They popped them in a room over a period of 15 days, not obviously for 15 days straight, that would make anyone cry, but uh, once a day for an average of 15 days. And they played them some sad film clips and got them to cry into a vial. So they collected about 1.6 mil of tears per volunteer and then they recruited the men. So the men were asked to play a computer game uh, with which they believed they were facing another human opponent. Mm -hmm. And this human opponent, they thought, was stealing money from them as the game went on. So they were given, I think, two squeezy balls and they were told to squeeze these if they wanted to seek to take revenge on their opponent, as in take money from them at no personal gain. So that was seen as a provocation and a revenge. And then the researchers calculated at the end of this provocation to revenge ratio and they found... Um, oh, apologies, I should mention that they were also asked to sniff the women's yeah. tears. Yeah, <laughs> they weren't just, just asked this to, randomly, as yeah. opposed to just torturing the men and getting them all riled up. But no, they were asked to um, sniff women's tears or saline as a control as they were doing this. And then at the end of the study, it was found that the men that had been exposed to female tears uh, actually 
sought revenge less than the men who had just been sniffing saline throughout. So researchers believe that there is a chemical in tears and at the end they do say that this could very well apply to all tears, not just female tears, that uh, calms aggression in, in men and indeed perhaps women as well. But that's yet to be researched. That's the next stage. Because I had seen, like, obviously, that sometimes that emotional tears have difficult enzymes or chemicals in them than necessarily, like, tears are you try and clear clear your eye. And it's a, a chemo uh, signaling point of view. Yeah. It, uh, they've also said with this that they said that uh, emotional tears are potentially not uniquely human as well. No, they have they have indicated there's a few different animals that, that they've uh, indicated may cry emotional tears, one of which was probably the most heartening, dogs. They, they, yes, exactly. You know, if you they, didn't need a reason to love them more. <laughs> they've documented uh, increased increased tearing when dogs meet their owners after a long period of the owners being away, uh, synonymous with our, our happy tears, I guess, or our own emotional tears. So uh, if you didn't need, exactly need another yeah, reason no. to love your dog... I'm not crying. You're crying. No, but not my, my heart dog. isn't breaking. No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, Fergus, our final story has to do with swirls and facial hair on ants. Now, not your family relative, uh, but Fergus, you mean the garden variety of facially haired ants? Yes, I do. And what is central to this story is, so do you remember lockdown and how bored we all were? Do I? Well... If only you were in Auburn University uh, in, in, in Alabama, because what um, a scientist did there to make sure that his students weren't getting bored during lockdown is he got them, instead of watching Tiger King and normal people, he got them to look at face patterns in photos of 11,000 different ants. Okay. Now, what why? point of all this? Yeah. Exactly. This is one of those like why stories. So the world of ant faces has a lot more to it than I initially thought. So it's actually a whole new art form of itself. And even people who study ant, ant faces get confused because there's about 150 specific different terms for how you can describe an ant face, one of which is destitute. But anyway, so they have sort of um, recategorized and then they have five main types of face and they are smooth, reticulate, striate, punctate and tuberous. Okay, I don't so know if like, I'd want one of them. Yeah, I don't know either. They sound a bit spooky. But what's the point of different facial patterns in ants? Because facial patterns in ants, they have appeared and disappeared and, and then reappeared over evolutionary time. But they do think that there's potentially functional aspects to these different types of ant faces there. So, for instance, there is a desert-dwelling, sand-digging um, pogonomimrex ants, right? And they have these, like, kind of fingerprint like ridges on their on their faces and that stops um, and those ridges are too small for the sand that when they push their head into the sand um, the grains of sand are too small to get in between so that's you know it, like it's almost like it's abrasion resistant however their neighbours the trapped jawed ondomachus ants have the same features but they don't put their heads into sand. So what are these weird kind of ridges on the face about? Well, they think potentially, because these trap jaw ants, they do exactly what the system is in, they shut their, they, they shut their jaws really fast, that these weird microsculptures, as they're, called, as they're called on their face, might diffuse stress or strain when they're closing their mouths that quickly. However, all of this has to be tested. So this sounds like a really cool job for someone who's into ant faces. It's not me. Well, I think you'd um, have to be into ant faces to want to <laughs> oh, do yeah. this. It is not one of my um, 2024 resolutions. But one one even weirder thing to come out of this study. Oh, come on, Fergus. An even weirder there thing? There's been a spin out of this. So the researchers worked with an artist who turned these ant face images into multicolored fabrics and motifs. 
and they have been stacked and blended uh, into this weird seamless flow and you can now buy ant-inspired pillows and t-shirts which are sold online raising money for both the artist and believe it or not the scientist's lab. Well I think if there's a lesson in that I, that's like so ants are entering the fashion world they're upping the ante as you might they say. They are upping the ante. I wrote that earlier on oh I'm so God. proud of it when it was coming in. <laughs> I was going to say it was very quick. So do we think leopard print might be a thing of the past then? Yeah. I think it is. And, and with it, this, obviously there was, so you were saying that there's structural strength added to like these ridges. So are they kind of like uh, lines that actually give the, the, because this ant closes its mouth so fast, is it, is it, so it's not just for identification or like that's a worker or anything else like that? No, it like, it appears to be quite functional. So like it's everything to do, with, uh, to do with um, helping the ants from stopping, from drying out uh, communication, but also these, this, you know, extra, um, functional strength because when this ant uh, closes its jaw it closes it so fast that it's able to launch itself into the air and far enough away to escape predators wow ants who knew but they're so, they're so impressive like the, the, the length of strength that they have the, the body weight that they can lift and now dominating the fashion world would you wear ant print? I would wear ant print I also have an idea for a sequel forget ant man ant face ant, <laughs> ant- watch it yeah, of course you'd watch it. <laughs> I mean, if this is brought out, like the things that came out of lockdown, it's just nice to hear that there's something positive that impacts the world and also that can help continue the research. Uh, Fergus, uh, thank you for joining us. Leanne, thank you for joining us. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Road safety has been at the forefront of the minds of many of us with the significant death toll that happened last year. And scientists at the University of Cambridge are exploring a new way of warning drivers of road obstacles through 3D holograms. Joining me now is Jana Skirniecki-Skaya. Jana, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Jana, can you talk to us a little bit and take us through the technology that you've created and what drivers actually see driving, I suppose, this experience with your technology? Yes. So a bit of a background. Currently, um, for example, what manufacturers are currently utilizing in cars is, are mostly windshield projections. So that means that um, the driver needs to shift the gaze from the road onto an actually small area of the windshield. And this could cause potential distractions and hazards on the road and the idea behind 3d head-up displays and which are also holographic um, it creates depth so that means um, we want the driver to really not to shift the focus and the gaze from the road so the eyes will be constantly on the road and the driver should not be distracted with anything related the fuel or the speed or if there are hazards on the road so what we thought the background is uh, of the research that the driver should see and be alerted also in the focus of the gaze of the driver so what the technology is actually achieving is um We scanned with LiDAR scanners um, public roads in London, um, two of them. One was Mallet Street and extracted potential hidden obstacles. So what that means is, uh, for example, road signs, which are not fully visible to the driver Mm -hmm. while driving um, because maybe a tree is in the way or something was blocking it at that time. 
Also, for example, when there are tricky corners, when there are high buildings uh, or uh, there are pedestrians crossing behind a truck. So those um, actually objects will be taken out and projected holographically in 3D, also with a 360 degree view of the obstacle so that the driver can fully assess the obstacle on the road. So it will be projected in size and distance originally as scanned on the road. So the, it will be just a natural addition to the driver while driving. It sounds like this is that you, by adding an, a, this natural depth, I suppose, that it's not distracting to the driver. Um, I have an image, though, of some ways, like of you fighter jets that the people have, you know, the, the large helmets and they have a whole heads up display <laughs> uh, where I take it we're not going to be starting to wear helmets like that, no? No, no. And uh, that was exactly the idea that the driver should not wear, for example, virtual reality headsets or glasses. So it should be as natural and most comfortable as possible, because I think the underlying and most important idea behind the research is that it should be widely accessible and inclusive to all drivers. And you mentioned that you're using LiDAR. Could you explain a little bit exactly, because some of our listeners might not necessarily know what LiDAR is. Absolutely, very happily to. Um, so LiDAR is, uh, that means light detection and ranging. So for example, the LiDAR scanner, there are terrestrial ones, but also airborne ones. We use terrestrial ones to scan the streets. It sends for, the scanner sends a light pulse and measures the distance the light travels back. So the advantage we have from those LiDAR scans is that we uh, scan in points and we gather from one scan millions of points and we can extract the objects which we want. So for example, we would never expose the driver for to too much information. It should be really only um, very hidden obstacles or something that is essential to the driver to be alerted of. Mm -hmm. And we extract this in 3D. So it really is something that not only is important to the driver to actually view, it's essential and viewable also in 360 degree view. So the obstacle that the driver will see will be rotated in also a manner the driver can customize to himself. Like, should it be rotated in 360 degree and the brightness can also be adjusted. So it's pretty customizable, the technology as well, to the driver preferences. So it sounds quite adaptable. It, I suppose one of the, the questions that I would have about this is how the, the system itself works, because it sounds obviously that it sounds very snazzy. It's doing lots of, taking lots of data in, it, it's computing it, it's then drawing a 3D holographic image. Does it need a lot of computing power? And also, how does it decide, like, what's the most significant object? Like, how does it decide what's important and what's not to highlight to the driver? Both questions are very important. Addressing the first one, we thought about this. And I think the most important for this technology is to be available in real time, as the driver will need to be alerted of hazards and really hidden objects when crossing the road in real time. So we actually accelerated. As you mentioned, um, it takes a lot of um, computing power to extract the amount of points needed to um, really fully holographically um, show the object in 3D. So we extract first those object uh, points, then create a hologram. And this hologram is projected 
optically in, within the optical setup. But this all is done in real time because we use GPU parallel processing accelerating the process. So everything can be done in real time. This was the first part that was essential for this technology to be implemented. The second part is, which you mentioned, is also very important, how the, the technology decides which obstacles are actually um, projected. So this we do manually and currently. But so we decide, for example, if a road sign is not fully visible and is not um, clear in the scan, we project it as a, a essential part for the driver to be alerted of. Or if a pedestrian is not fully visible as behind a bicycle or behind a truck, then we project that. So this is really uh, driven um, based on how um, important it is. For example, pedestrians crossing and people would be projected as a first tier really projection and everything else would be already secondary. So this is done manually so far, but we uh, also in the future want to implement machine learning so that the algorithm decides by itself what to project. So you're going to use kind of a, a machine learning tool, an AI or whatever else, to then actually learn based on the, the inputs that you've put in and saying, well, this person is important because they're a person. And then there's a tier of importance that, that goes through it so that the machine or the car can can learn as you drive. So it will, actually, will it continue to learn as it drives more and more? Uh, is that the plan? Or is it something that you'd have a finished model in place ready for delivery to be installed in cars? Yes, um, very importantly. So I think the basic mechanism now, what we have already, we have all the point cloud, LIDAR point cloud data already collected and shared. Um, so it's on an open repository accessible to everyone. And this can be uh, downloaded by everyone and used. It's already available, the basic projection mechanism, which we implemented. For example, that we implemented some tiers, what should be projected first, and this would be projected. But I think the most important for this technology is that the, really the car and the algorithm can learn is we only scan two streets in London. And this is technology need in order to work needs of course for people to be widely accessible so that it could be implemented in cars and the cars would scan more streets and this information scanned would be shared in a global cloud and then it would be accessible to everyone crossing this road and would be um, alerted of the hazards on this road so the more cars and the more participants come into this system the better it will be and the more more uh, the system can learn and um, adapt. So it's ideally that the more people that I suppose test it, the more robust it is, the more likely it is to be used because I suppose there'll be difficulty in identifying things, particularly on a, a grey, wet, rainy day. And if, say, my, my father was walking across the road, who tends to wear a lot of grey clothes and just blends into backgrounds, there is a lot of kind of human interaction that's training the model initially. Um, yes. So accessibility is important in that mind and also being able to see lots of different things and people. But in terms of it being installed on all cars, is this something that can be retrospectively installed on all cars? Is there anything your car would need that, to be special to have? Or is it, or even in terms of, is this also an accessible tool for people who need maybe assisted driving tools as well? 
Thank you for this question. This is very important to us that this technology would be available for everyone so that it can be customized for people with various conditions. So now even we work on um, colorful head-up displays so that we can adjust each color and to the preferences of the driver. Should it be actually in full color or the brightness can be adjusted, the number of points of the obstacle can be also adjusted. We try to give more freedom to to the person actually driving and choosing and yes so what is was also very important that the entire optical set but we reduced it so that it's more compact and it could be integrated into any car so this was one of the most important aspects of this technology that it should be compact and customizable to the driver and compact and customizable is important. The amount of data, though, that you're going to be collecting is not necessarily compact. That's going to potentially be large amounts of data, particularly when it, the, the model is out in the world and, and is kind of learning. Does the system have a, an uplink to a central control? And are there, one of the questions that my, my, one of my friends asked is like, I don't want people taking pictures of me as I'm driving. Do, do you blur out certain parts as it's, so I suppose it's the size of the data I'm asking about and also where it's stored and, and how it's used and who has access? Absolutely. So far, um, yes, when we did the scans, uh, for example, on both streets, um, we did the scans and we uploaded only on the system the hidden obstacles, of course, with everyone's permission. So we did not upload people's faces. It's only a silhouette. So it will draw, for example, not people's faces or anything that could be really recognizable to that person. It's only a silhouette, really stating to the driver, okay, these are the dimensions of the obstacle. When we collect the data, um, we never collect people's faces or anything that recognizes or personalizes anything, including the people we um, scan on the street. So we just will project a silhouette of the object with the colors, yes, but nothing that is really recognizable or personalizable to that specific person. Um, the second part of the technology is, um, yes, there will be a lot of data collected. But importantly is that, yes, it could be all stored in a big point cloud where everyone has access to and could actually uh, also specify which amount of data um, the, that car needs. But I think it's important that uh, also to see which data has been proven to be important as hidden obstacles and all other gathered data could be just deleted instantly. So only the essential parts like the hidden obstacles on those roads would be actually stored in the cloud. Okay, so that so there's a lot of issues that you seem to have tackled with this and you've kind of come across, uh, I suppose, obstacles that people might have in terms of data. You, you, everything's going to be silhouetted. Hopefully a svelte silhouette can be requested for anybody <laughs> who wants one. Uh, yes. You seem to, This seems to be a real passion project uh, for you, Jana. Where did it come from? from where, I, I know that you originally worked at, at Jaguar and Land Rover, but what's your main, where did this come from for, for you? What, what, what are you really hoping to get out of this in the end? Thank you. I think it is really, it has been going already for a very long time. Um, I first studied mechanical engineering and focused on design. And uh, now I'm in electrical engineering and I worked in the automotive industry. I saw just some challenges, but when I saw how much actually 
freedom academia gave and um, the most important for me were the freedom that to form connections so we worked together with UCL and the University of Cambridge as well and at the University of Oxford with many different researchers and I formed many different friendships and I think this is where the ideas also formed to um, to work together interdisciplinary and uh, form friendships which formed also research collaborations and this is I think not only an idea which I developed it is really a collaborative effort and uh, that's how it became such a huge passion to include uh, more people to in design also technologies which would be inclusive for all um, that was the main part of and the background of developing also because head up displays existed before and uh, also even 3D held-up displays uh, could also be already researched. But I think this part of combining different areas and trying to optimize it, that was probably the part that was really important to me. And and is that the next step for you, really kind of just getting this to a kind of an optimized level that it's actually ready to go? And how long do you think that's that's going to take? Yes, absolutely. This is uh, totally the next step. And uh, so now we have developed already a full color head-up display in 3D. And uh, now the next step would be really working with car manufacturers. Now we work together with um, Google, also the inclusive design team. And that was very important to me. I think we could already start this year, in the new year, to implement this technology in cars and test it and gather more data to actually find main menu challenges and tackle them instantly so that we have a chance to bring this technology on the market. Well, I think with so many, like I think people realize that there's there's 1.35 million lives uh, taken every year from us. And with technology like this uh, from Cambridge's Department of Engineering, Jana, I think you're going to make a massive difference in the world. Thank you for joining us on Future Proof. Thank you so much. It's an honor and I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you. And finally, some of your texts from our last show. Jared was in touch with us via email. Love the podcast. In November, I was out taking photos of the northern lights that were visible over County Sligo. I thought I saw a contrail of a plane running east to west in direction, so ignored it and kept facing north, trying to get a shot of the northern lights. It started to get cloudy, so I pointed the camera east to take a photo of the contrail. I got two photos before it got cloudy. Turns out it was a Steve, which we had heard is a strong thermal emission velocity enhancement similar to an Aurora. Hadn't heard about it before uh, before that night, but Jared got to see it. That's very that's class. Le- learning and seeing beautiful stuff in the skies of Ireland. Another tweet came in. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation around how cold our bodies can withstand. I'm obsessed with cold plunging, but always thought it was more of a mind over matter question. Well, you do what matters to you, I guess, so, and keep that in mind. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof podcast. We'll have more in your podcast feed from Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on News Talk.